Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and the author of The Mission Driven Life. If you don't have your copy of that free ebook, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab a copy for yourself so you can learn the seven laws of life mission. So glad you're here. Want to make sure that uh, you know we'd love to grow this podcast. If you can write us a review and share it out and subscribe, that will help us let other people know what it is that we're doing here at The Mission Driven Mom, grow our community and our influence for good. I want to tell you some really powerful stories today that have made a huge difference in my life and teach me the answer to the question of what do good people do when bad things happen to them? When Ben was a young man just starting his family, he wanted the opportunity to run a business. And there was a man who had a business, but it was failing. And so they made a deal that Ben would take over the business and he would make it successful. And if he managed to make it successful, then this owner would give him 85% of the equity and they shook on it. And so the years went by and Ben worked hard in the business and he made it more and more and more successful. And his family was living a comfortable lifestyle and enjoying the proceeds of this business. And then Ben I guess, and the owner, I guess, just together, I don't know, decided that it was a good time to sell the business because it had become really profitable. And so Ben found a buyer and was able to secure a really great deal for this owner. And when they got to the closing table and Ben asked for his share of the proceeds after all these years of working on the business, the owner told him that they never signed anything and he didn't owe him anything and walked away and didn't give Ben a penny. So now Ben not only didn't have all this equity in this business and all this profit that he had worked for and looked forward to for so many years, now he had a family in a comfortable middle-class lifestyle that he no longer could support. And although he had been successful in business, he struggled and struggled to find work. He said he had always been very active in church and generous and they were well respected in the community and all of a sudden he was the one at the welfare office getting help. It was really uh, depressing for him. It really took a huge blow on his self-confidence. He had to move with four children in high school into a one-bedroom apartment in order to just get by and be able to feed everyone and he was looking and looking and not being able to find a job and he said one day he went to the welfare office and he looked around and he said, you know, I'd always thought that poor people were really different from me and that they were somehow, I don't know, lazier or different. And he says, suddenly I began to realize that we are all the same. I had hunger pains and they had hunger pains. I was in pain because I wasn't able to care for my family and so were they. And so he saw these uh, poor at the welfare office around him and all of a sudden he had this newfound empathy for them. 
but not much changed in his life. He wasn't able to get on top of his finances and he looked and looked and finally he landed a job at a gas station, but he was 25 years older than the guy he was working for. And he was making like minimum wage and barely making ends meet. And he just became so depressed that he was convinced that his family was better off without him. He says, one day I drove out to a retreat center. I parked my car and walked around the back of the building behind the chapel. I sat down, pulled a gun out of my coat, and I pointed it at my head. I was absolutely ready to pull that trigger. But just then, I felt a hand on my shoulder. It was a friend of mine named Matthew. He had called my wife to check on me, and she told him I had left the house very depressed. He found me just in time. I'm not sure how glad I was to see him in that moment. I wanted to escape from the unbearable pain, but now I know that God sent Matthew that day because he had a work for me to do. So he gets this job at the gas station and he's still having a hard time. And he says, not too long afterwards, though, I heard an opportunity to buy a service station. I had only debts at that point, so I knew I couldn't afford it, but I prayed about it and let it go. Then amazingly, a member of my church came forward and loaned me the money. I had never thought I would have an opportunity to own my own business again, and I was so thankful. As I was getting my business going, I thought long and hard about my recent experiences. I began to see that God had been trying to send me a message. I knew the message had something to do with working with the poor, but I didn't know exactly what to do. So at a worship service one Sunday, I asked if anyone in the congregation wanted to meet with me to talk about the issues of the poor. Four people showed up at that first meeting, and that included my wife, but I wasn't discouraged. We might be a small group, but we were serious about our goal. The five of us established a mission group. Since we didn't yet know exactly what direction to take and listen to this, it's so amazing. We decided to focus our attention first on our inward journey, the journey of the soul. And so for nine months, they read scripture daily, kept journals, and spent two hours a week working with the impoverished. And then they met weekly to discuss what they were learning. He says it was a time of tremendous spiritual growth. And we began to realize that God was calling us to work with homeless people. We decided that our goal would be to help homeless folks learn to meet their own needs. And he founded Hillcrest Ministries. They were able to get hold of an apartment building and to establish apartments for homeless people to clean them up and put them there and help them gain basic skills and learn how to meet their own needs. And they did that for 10 years. Eventually, the mayor of Dallas challenged the city to solve its problem of housing for the homeless. Two churches stepped forward to answer the call, and his daughter was on one of those boards, and they asked him to come to Dallas and set up a program. I prayed about it and felt the calling to respond to those needs. In 1985, we moved to Dallas and the Interfaith Housing Coalition was founded to provide transitional housing and services for homeless people. He says, these days I work 60 to 70 hours a week for less money than I've ever earned in my life, except for when I worked at the gas station. 
He says he does all kinds of jobs. He runs the organization. He's the executive digress, uh, director, but some days you can find him cleaning toilets as too, too. They bring in homeless people and um, help set them up and teach them basic skills. They have after-school tutoring for children. We talk about parenting and child care and uh, help abuse children. And then he says, but the most important thing we do for our residents is that we love them. No matter what else we do, love is the key. And in turn, I know that being with them and watching the positive changes in their lives gives me the greatest happiness and peace. The truth is that I've never been happier in my life. Now, Bea was a single mom and she was just kind of, you know, they were doing okay. She kind of thought of herself as super mom. They weren't, you know, in the lap of luxury, but she worked really hard. She worked nights in a factory so that her kids could go to school full time and do football and drill team. She said, life wasn't easy, but my children were doing well and I was paying the bills. And so I considered myself lucky. She would go to work at 11 o'clock at night, work all night until 7 a.m. And then she would come home and um, get the kids ready for school. And then she would sleep while they were at school. And when they got home, she would spend time with them, helping with homework, making dinner and getting everything in place before she went to work at 11 o'clock again that night. Well, one day the fatigue caught up with her and she was getting by and doing okay, but then life got horrible. She was working. She stood up on a stool to work, uh, on a machine. She was trying to change the part on a huge machine, but her foot slipped and the stool gave way and she fell into the machine. She blacked out after that and just remembers there was just kind of blood everywhere. And she woke up at the hospital. She had a separated pelvis and two slipped discs and she was in horrible, horrible pain. She went through a handful of surgeries to try to repair things. But from that moment on, she was in constant chronic pain. She tried all kinds of painkillers and, um, and she, she couldn't work. She was supposed to get money from the factory's insurance company, but it took a long time to get, they lost their apartment and their car and their children wanted to drop out of school to work and pay the bills. And she told them no. It was her job to take care of them and she would find a way, but life didn't get better. She couldn't work and she couldn't stand the constant pain. She says, before too long, I became very depressed. I had no money. I was in constant pain. I was a mother who couldn't even take care of her children any longer. I felt like I was good for nothing. And I started having thoughts of suicide. They scared me because I knew my children still needed me. And so she called a social service agency and they sent a wonderful woman named Anna. And Anna was a bit of a savior to her. She counseled her and they helped pay her rent and her groceries. Anna came regularly, but the pain didn't get better. And one day she sat on her bed with the door closed and looked at a bottle of pain pills. What if I took all these pills at the same time, I thought. At that moment, it didn't seem like such a bad idea. 
Then I started to cry, thinking about my children and the fact that I just didn't want to suffer anymore. Right then I heard someone knocking at my door. The knocking kept going on and on. Finally I got up to answer the door. There was Anna. I started to cry. God had sent her to me. She had saved my life. Anna checked on me three times a day after that and made sure I showed up for counseling. Anna helped Bea get back on her feet and kind of functioning a little bit and having a little more normalcy in her life. But then she had to take a job out of town. And so Bea had to start kind of running her life on her own. As she had a little more function and a little less pain, she was able to start doing some of the chores around her house. And it was, she says, it was one of those chores that changed the course of my life. She went outside to throw away the trash and she heard something moving in the dumpster. She says, when I peered over the edge, I saw a little boy from a nearby apartment in there. He was digging around in that garbage, looking for something to eat. I had never seen anything like that in my life. She got him out of the dumpster, threw away the dirty piece of bread he had in his hand, took him to her apartment and gave him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and sent him home. She said she was still thinking about that poor little boy 15 minutes later when six more five-year-olds showed up at her door and asked, is it true you're giving peanut butter sandwiches away? No, I'm not, I said, but if you're hungry, come on in, I'll feed you. So I fixed them all peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and I sent them all home. And the next day I had 13 hungry kids at my door and I made some more sandwiches. And then I started asking some questions. I asked people why there were so many hungry children in our neighborhood. And they explained that these children got free lunches at school, but this was June and school was out. And so they didn't have anyone to give them lunch. Their parents worked and they had to wait until their parents came back at night to eat. I couldn't imagine it. I had worked so hard to provide for my own kids and I was still trying hard to provide. By this time, I was on disability insurance and I realized that I had been so busy taking care of my own five children that I hadn't noticed the needs of the other children right around me. I picked up the phone. I called the social service agency where Anna had worked and I called my church. I told everyone what was happening to these children and I told them I wanted to help, but I couldn't do it alone. And boy, did I ever get help. I had so much peanut butter and jelly and bread delivered to my apartment that I still have a jar of peanut butter from the first donation eight years before. She started bringing them into her apartment and feeding them lunches. She said, we had so much fun that summer. We watched movies. We talked about God and we played games. I tried to teach them about cleanliness. A lot of the children had head lice, so I tried to clean it out of their hair and get rid of the lice. And she just fell in love with those children. They were so nice, but so poor and completely unattended. So summer came, the end of summer came and school started and the kids went back to school. And then Bea realized how lonely she'd become with her own children really starting to leave home she said, helping these kids had given me a reason to live. My apartment felt so empty and quiet that first day of school, much too quiet. And then at the end of the school day, a knock came at her door. Bea, we need help with our schoolwork. Will you help us with math? Will you help us with reading? 
Of course I will, I told them, my eyes filled with tears. Come on in. I was just glad they were back. I believe God called me to do this work. God needed someone to look after these kids, and that someone was me. When God calls you to do something, you don't fight that. She started a nonprofit organization called Bea's Kids, and they, she got the management of her building to give her a one-bedroom apartment that was empty for 30 kids to take care of after school, and within a month, there were 60 kids. Now, eight years later, they had multiple apartment uh, uh, multiple apartment apartments for all the children to come to and the whole community was involved she says we have volunteers help us from local schools and businesses they make sure that the kids always have new shoes twice a year and socks and underwear and school supplies and they even got a com some computers donated i feel like these children are all my own i'm so proud of them they're doing so well these children know what is expected of them when they come into our program and they know how important they are to us our kids are not on drugs. Our girls are not pregnant. They have a clear direction in life. I am so blessed. These children are the reason I'm here now. That's why I'm living, to help them. Even when I have days when I can barely walk because of my injuries, I get up and get going because I know my kids need me. They give me a purpose. In fact, they've given me much more than I've ever given them. I now know that this is why God saved my life. He saved my life because he needs me to take care of these children. Now there's another um, teenager and her name is Brienne. Brienne was born with 13 broken bones. After a lot of studies and tests were run, they realized that she has a disease called osteogenesis imperfecta. IO is a disease in which the bones grow, but not well. She says, they're very fragile. When I was little, even hiccuping would cause me to break ribs. If someone pushed me, I would break my arm. One day my dad reached around from the driver's seat to the back seat of the car and broke my jaw just by accidentally hitting, hitting me with his elbow. I've been to the I, uh, NIH to see my doctor, the, the, the hospital that treats her kind of uh, illness, every three months for my entire life. Nothing has really worked in terms of helping my bones, but everything the doctor has done has helped me strengthen my muscles, and that's one of the reasons why she can function today. Many kids who have this disease never learn to walk. Her, In fact, she didn't want to walk. Her parents put pebbles on the floor around the house so that it would be too painful to crawl and she would have to learn to walk. Her parents would cover her with sweats and bundle her up and put her in a pool so that she would have to swim against the weight of the clothing on her body and force her to build her muscles. She said one day when she was swimming that a woman like screamed out and came running over to her and told her mother, your daughter has the best aura I have ever seen. She is just glowing. I can feel it all the way across the pool. She said her mom was really taken back. And when she heard that story, she felt like this woman was saying, this child has a gift and it changed her whole frame of reference. Rather than thinking of herself as broken, she thinks of herself as having a gift that allows her to bless the lives of other people. 
When she finally was able to go to school, she had to be sent with two bodyguards that would help protect her so she wouldn't just break her bones every day while she was at school. Um, she was forced, she says, it hurts just as much for me to break a bone as for anyone else. It's just that when your bones break so often, you have to learn to get over it fast. So I forced myself to learn how to deal with the pain. I don't let it bother me. I never let myself get into the depth of despair. I always look for something good. I can always say, and this is amazing. <laughs> okay, so I did break my back, but I can still read a good book and I can still play with my cat. And each time I reach a new low, my parents look for a plan, make a plan of action for me. And they would help her to figure out a way to deal with the new broken bone and the whole process that she would have to go through. She would have to be on the couch uh, for weeks and then she would have to slowly work her way back to school. For a while, I was having a bad problem with my draw, jaw and just could barely eat. That was the worst time. I was so small. I'm so small as it is. I'm 4'6 and weigh only about 60 pounds or so. But with this jaw problem, I was down to 50 pounds. When I'd get out of the shower and look at myself in the mirror, I would just start to cry. One time, I just sank to the floor sobbing. I couldn't help it. And my mother came in and we cried together. I missed a lot of school that year because it was just so awful not to be able to eat. But when I went into that hospital for surgery to fix my jaw, I saw these kids who were in so much worse shape than I was. And then I thought, how could I possibly be depressed when I'm walking around and I'm virtually normal and I have my independence? How can I be depressed over that little thing in my life when other people are in such bad shape? Sure, there have been times when I've been tempted to question God or feel like he is punishing me for some reason I don't understand. There have been times when I've wondered why this had to happen. But then I think about all the wonderful things that have happened in my life. And I know I really can't stay depressed. From the time that I was little, one of the things that has always made me feel the best has been helping other people with their problems. And it has always been the source of my healing. When there was um, floods in the Midwest, she wanted to physically go and help. And she begged and begged and begged her parents. She didn't want to just send money. She wanted to be on the ground helping the people in the flood. But everybody knew that it was a recipe for disaster and that she very well could break a lot of bones in this venture. But she insisted and they finally allowed her to go. Her parents helped with cleanup and she was able to work in the relief center and sort donations. I could easily have broken a bone in that situation, and I knew that. But so many people have helped me. How could I not give back to people who needed it? To me, it was simple. These people needed help, and so I went. Right now, I'm working through the ambassadors program of an organization called Heart of America. We speak to kids at schools about motivation, community service, and doing your best. It makes me feel so good to do that. I know that the kids we speak to sometimes feel like they have so many problems or they have so little hope for their future, but I have the opportunity to show them another way to look at their lives. I have a chance to tell them what I've learned, and it makes me feel great to know that I can make a difference. Now, the stories that I've shared with you, 
come from a book called The Courage to Give that I happened upon in a library years ago. And the reason I've titled this podcast, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, is because you can see what power you have when bad things happen to you. This, is, this book is a collection of the stories of 30 people who tell about the bad things that happened to them and how they turned it into an opportunity to give back and serve. And that service, that purpose in life was a source of joy and healing for them. Story after story, they stop looking inward and stop engaging in self-pity and depression. And they look outside themselves at other people who may or may not even realistically be worse off, but who have problems too and who need to be served and they lose themselves in service and gratitude and it changes everything for them. The author's name is Jackie Waldman and she has her own amazing story and I'll end with her story and encourage you to go get this book, The Courage to Give and think the next time something bad happens to you about what you can do as a good person when something bad happens. Jackie says she had kind of lived a charmed life. She met her husband at 14 and it was a match made in heaven and they had a beautiful marriage. They had three children and her husband was successful in his career and she was able to stay home and raise her children. She loved to exercise and would go to aerobics sometimes twice a day and was part of a, a tennis league. As the kids got older and she had more time, she decided to start a business. She happened upon a woman who made bows and she learned to make these bows and she turned it into a company called Bojangles that grew and grew and grew. Before long, they had 25 employees and 25 sales reps across the country. They were in every major department store and hundreds of small boutiques. She said, I made it a point to hire Russian immigrants, teachers, scientists, engineers who needed to learn English before they could practice their professions in this country. We all worked together in one big room to help them with their English. Everyone spoke only English while working, but on their breaks, they were free to speak Russian. And we celebrated when one of these new Americans learned enough English to quit Bojangles and get back to their chosen career. She really felt like her life was full. She didn't really want for anything. They were financially successful. They were active in their church. She had a relationship with God. She had good relationships with her children. And then she started having a strange tingling sensation around her wrist. And at first she thought maybe she was just imagining this. And then she attributed it to stress or maybe to some back injury she'd had years before. But then when she finally made it to the doctor, a neurologist hospitalized her that day and they started running MRIs and pretty soon they were able to diagnose her with multiple sclerosis. She said when the doctor walked into the room to tell them that she had multiple sclerosis, even he seemed sad. Of course, this is an illness where the myelin coating around your nerves deteriorates and messes up your, um, your system so that your nerves can't communicate with your brain and you lose function of different areas of your body and it can manifest in many different ways. It looks different in different people. It's an autoimmune disease. It's unpredictable and there's no cure. And so her first, you know, first goal was to halt the attack and she was able to slow down the, the progress 
of the deterioration to a degree, but her health really declined and she wasn't able to do many of the things that she was able to do before. She says, in fact, one day she decided, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to exercise like I used to. And she got on the treadmill and fast walked three miles and was so excited and elated, but it, it just flattened her. She had to sleep for four hours in order to recover. So she says, first she went into denial and she didn't want to believe that she really had an illness. She didn't want to believe that it was really going to affect her life. And then she became angry and she knew that her anger wasn't justified. She knew she shouldn't feel that way, but she began to feel resentful of all the happiness around her, resentful of her husband who could still do all the things that he did before and have how he could play with the children and run a normal life. And then she started to blame herself. She said, I had ruined an absolutely perfect life. Steve didn't bargain for this. I told myself over and over again. And I kept thinking that he would be better off without me and that maybe I should just let him off the hook. So she starts deteriorating into all these negative thoughts and this depression. She tries to put on this outward positive cheery appearance, but inside she was full of pain and devastation and she didn't even want to talk to her husband about it because she didn't want to feel his pain. She made a friend who talked to her about the love of God, about the unconditional love inside of us, and about choosing faith and love. And then she saw the movie Schindler's List, and she became involved with a National Random Acts of Kindness Month. And they put on a week-long celebration, and she helped put this event on. They did a kindness rally for 10,000 children, and there was kindness everywhere in the media. They did... Um, they did a hot, they did handed out, they got the YMCA to hand out hot chocolate. Um, children with, dis, with learning differences made art exhibits. They sang a song someone wrote. They um, had different children from different faiths taught by Martin Luther King III. So all these incredible things happened and she was just on this total high. Kindness was everywhere in the media. And, um, and her friend kept reminding her to watch the miracles and to see the love and to see God. She didn't want that feeling to end when this kindness month was over. And so she decided to volunteer at the Dallas Memorial Center for Holocaust Studies. And she started doing these tours and teaching about Holocaust victims. For the very first time, she says, since my MS diagnosis, I was feeling someone else's pain and not thinking about myself. I liked the way I was feeling, so I took on more volunteer jobs. I said yes to everyone. And then she happened into a used bookstore and I'd be curious, I've not read this book, but I'd really like to based on what she says about it. It's called Real Magic by Wayne Dyer. And he talks about, she says, he wrote of going within and discovering that our purpose in life is to love unconditionally and to live a life of service. And then he talked about intuition, the divine spark within each of us we can access whenever we choose and being grateful for the smallest things. She says it was an instant awakening. In that moment, every piece of my life became crystal clear. I knew that I lived my life not seeing real magic. And in that moment, I knew without a doubt exactly who I was. Not a person with a disease and weak legs, but a person who has a heart filled with love and wants to be of service. I felt a lightness I had not felt in years and my healing began. My healing is about healing within and I knew my purpose was to serve others and that's why my service works always gives me new energy. So for about a year she's had this awakening and she knows who she really is and that's one of the themes too is they these individuals begin to see that 
when their lives seem broken or their bodies seem broken, they really aren't broken because they still have a loving heart and they still have love that they can give. It reminds me of Mother Tenboom when she's completely debilitated and all she can do, she can't even speak. All she can do is look out the window of her apartment building and she would use whatever cues of, of communication she could to have birthday cards and anniversary cards written for the people in, in her city to let them know she was thinking of them. Anyway, um, Jackie goes on. About a year later, I said, God, okay, I'm really stretched. I keep saying yes to everyone. I promise I'll say yes to whatever you ask me to do. What's next? Less than a week later, I woke up and looked at Steve. Okay, I've got my marching orders. I'm writing a book and I've been told exactly what it is about. It's about people who have suffered physical or emotional pain and have gone beyond their own pain to help someone else. And that's how this book, The Courage to Give, was born. She said, this year I had reason to celebrate. I was living with purpose. She went and found these 30 people and interviewed them and they got the book together and they were able to find a publisher. And she said, I thanked God for the miracle for giving me this incredible gift to share with, their, with the world. I cried for the miracle of life, for the chance I and we all have been given to offer our unique gifts to the world, gift born, gifts born so often from our very woundedness. So that's the message I want to give you today, that when bad things happen to us, when bad things happen to good people, we still have the power to choose love, to choose service, to see that no matter what feels or seems broken in us or in our lives, we still have the opportunity to reach outside ourselves, to develop our gifts, to use them to serve others, and to live a mission-driven life. So I would really encourage you to go get this book, The Courage to Give, to read these stories. I'll put the ones that are my favorites on the blog post at themissiondrivenlife.com so you can see those and a few that aren't really appropriate for kids because I really think you'll want to read these stories to their children, to your children and have these conversations about uh, putting your life in order and developing your gifts so that you can be of service to the world. We don't have to wait until something hard happens. We can do this now. We can prepare ourselves using the seven laws of life mission, but we can be inspired by those who, in spite of their pain and in spite of their struggles, reached outside themselves and found the real joy and healing that comes from purpose through service. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast today. Please go visit themissiondrivenmom.com and get your free copy of my ebook, The Mission Driven Life, and I'll see you next time.